Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me generating output. This is you receiving input. Good to be with you. My name is Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, California. Got a great show for you today. Bernie Glassman is the guest. He is a Zen master, a teacher of Zen. Uh, as far as I know, he's the first Zen master that I've ever interviewed. And uh, Zen or the practice of meditation, Buddhism, whatever you want to call it. These are things that I have touched upon in previous episodes of this show in conversation uh, or in the monologue. I feel like I, I've been sort of building up to this in a sense. It's about time I actually talk to someone who knows what they're talking about on this particular front. And I should add, just for the sake of clarity, uh, you know that I do have a long history of dabbling in meditation. Uh, I read about this stuff a lot. Uh, you know, kind of like all the usual books that people who read about this stuff tend to read, like the Suzuki's and the Pema Chodron's, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, Eckhart Tolle, Chogyam Trungpa, and so on down the line. Uh, I'm a sucker for it. And, uh, you know, as for meditation itself, it's it's one of those things that I wish I did every day, twice a day, without fail. I wish I had that discipline. Uh, and in the past, I've gone through periods where I actually did 
do this. You know, but then for whatever reason, it sort of trails off. I get sidetracked. I forget to do it. And then I fall back into the old pattern of not doing it. I get caught up. But this morning, I did meditate. I think it was because, you know, I think it's because I knew I was going to do this show. I was going to produce it. And I was like, you know, I should meditate today. So I did that. It felt good. It always feels good. Like I like to, to have done it. It's sort of like writing in that respect. You know, sometimes it's really pleasant during the doing. Other times it's, it's hard or uncomfortable or weird or whatever, but it always feels good after the fact. I like having done it a lot. It feel it makes me feel better. It makes me feel like I have something good happening. And I think what I have to realize is that it's a practice. It's an ongoing thing. It's about maintenance. You have to keep maintaining perpetually. Because, uh, you know, I can, I can read a good book. I can read uh, like Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, or I can read The Dude and the Zen Master by uh, Bernie, today's guest, and Jeff Bridges. And I can feel for a moment or even for an extended moment like I have it by the tail. Like I understand it, you know? But then, uh, like the other night, for example, this is like Sunday night, Oscar Sunday. The Oscars are on, and uh, my wife and I are trying to wa- <laughs> trying to watch the show with our two year old in the room. We figured we could do this, and she didn't have a good nap that day. She was sort of slap happy, uh, running around the room. Uh, awards were being handed out, jokes are being told. I'm like turning up the volume. I can't hear anything. Uh, my daughter's then like climbing all over me. She's laughing. Then she's crying. It's, it's pandemonium. It's like domestic pandemonium. And, uh, and then on top of it, as I look back at this in retrospect, there's this pandemonium happening, but then I'm also watching all these like fabulously wealthy, good looking, uh, people accepting golden statues, uh, Statues? Statuettes? You know, they're accepting these uh, golden statuettes before a worldwide audience of billions of adoring fans. And, uh, you know, I don't know. It was one of those moments, and I sort of lost it. Like, I think it was when Daniel Day-Lewis was about to win uh, Best Actor, like yet another award, and uh, he he had just been announced by Meryl Streep and he's coming up on stage and uh, suddenly my daughter starts screaming or whatever happened and I just (laughs) I just lost it I shouted like I could feel it coming you know where your head it's almost like steam was going to come out of my ears I just couldn't take it anymore the pressure internally but you know uh, what did I say I was like something to the effect of I'm going to lose my goddamn I'm going to lose my goddamn mind if this kid isn't quiet, you know, quiet down. And then my wife tells me to quiet down. And, and then I start uh, shouting at her saying, this is crazy. I deserve to have a moment to lose my mind, essentially. As if this was somehow justified. It was a human moment, but I don't know if it was justified. And so there's like bickering happening and it's just, <laughs> it was the stupidest thing looking back on it. I mean, it's the Oscars and I I don't even give a shit about the Oscars. And yet I always watch them 
with like, a, like an almost anthropological level of morbid interest. It's a weird cultural exercise. You know, I love the movies. So, uh, long story short, I behaved badly. And, it, you know, it's not like I went fully apeshit. I didn't throw lamps or anything. I just got uh, frustrated. And I raised my voice. And I don't like raising my voice in front of my kid at all. I don't want to be one of those dads. And I don't want to be one of those people. I don't like raising my voice generally. I don't like losing it. It doesn't feel good to do that. Maybe in like the heat of the moment you think it's going to feel good. It always feels bad for me afterwards. And I don't like verbally fighting at all. I don't like trying to be right. Like when I get into like verbal combat mode where I have to be right. It's like this weird internal pressure that happens. Like that to me is a form of violence. It's violent behavior. That's what I think. That need to be right about whatever it is, however big or small, the impulse is the same. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm going to win. So, you know, it ultimately, it culminated this whole outburst of mine. It culminated in my two-year-old daughter saying to me, and imagine for a moment, a very cute, sweet, overtired, uh, two-year-old saying this. She said to me, daddy, don't talk so loud. You're hurting, my, <laughs> you're hurting my ears. And I'm just like, oh, like talk about a knife to the heart. I just felt sick, you know, this is awful. And it's, uh, it sucks to admit that that even happened, but it happened. You know, I'm a parent and from time to time, you know, from time to time, this sort of thing transpires, not often, but every once in a while I get overloaded I lose my uh, thread. I lose my center, whatever you want to call it. And I remember, you know, after it had passed and I had, had you know, the Oscars were over. I, my daughter had gotten her bath. We were put, I was putting her to bed. Uh, she goes to bed. Everything has sort of like regained its equilibrium. And I'm in the kitchen and I'm talking to my wife and I'm, I'm apologizing. Like I immediately knew that the whole thing was bad. I shouldn't have done it. And I kept saying to her, I need to be more Zen. I need to, I, <laughs> I said, I need to meditate. God damn it. I remember actually saying that. That's how I said it. I need, God damn it. I need to meditate. It's like sort of inherently hostile, but I really felt it. So anyway, you know, you read these books about it. You think about it. You try to get better uh, spiritually, whatever it is that you do. It doesn't have to be Zen or Buddhism or meditation, whatever it is. You, you know, I think, you know, if you're out there and you're anything like me, you're trying to get better, to understand yourself better. Uh, you're trying, I'm trying to become less reactive to my own thoughts. It all seems simple enough, especially when you're locked into a good book. Uh, but then you're in the thick of it and stuff starts happening and you get stuck in traffic uh, or somebody gives you shit at work or, you know, your parents come to town or a bad review rolls in or your kid is screaming while you're trying to watch a television show that you don't even really like yet. You're very interested in seeing it for reasons that are probably at least somewhat existentially troubling. <laughs> 
So what am I saying? I'm saying that in the past, you know, as I've kind of cycled in and out of these periods of uh, good practice, good meditation, just throughout my adult life, I've tried to boil it down. I've tried to simplify. That's what I get to after I have all these different thoughts in my head, after I've read all these different books, I'll try to get myself to boil it down. You know, thinking about my general perception of existence, my confusions, my points of clarity, uh, all the various books that I've read, these attempts to kind of sort things out and to get at some kind of deeper truth. Uh, you know, obviously you can't relive all these wisdoms that you have collected on a daily basis. You can't reread everything at once. So I've tried to boil it down. Like just, I've tried to find something to tell myself in the morning when I wake up. Something to tell myself when I'm frustrated or on the verge of losing it. Uh, something simple. And what I've come to, uh, you know, or this is what I've, I've found uh, is the bottom of it all. And, and it's two words long. Be kind. That to me is the, the nut of every spiritual road. So, you know, if I can do nothing else, just be kind. That's it. Just remember that all day. Be kind. And, you know, with the understanding that if I do that, if I'm able to do that consistently, things will probably go, you know, fairly well for me. And so then recently uh, I read this book, uh, The Dude and the Zen Master by Bernie Glassman, today's guest and his co-author, uh, Jeff Bridges, the great actor, the Academy Award winning actor, I should add, and uh, the man who brought the dude so vibrantly to life in The Big Lebowski, the uh, epic stoner classic by the Coen brothers. And it's a great book. It reads like a great, uh, funny, smart conversation. And I found it sort of medicinal. It puts you in a good space. And so, you know, with this in mind, having read this book, instead of telling myself, be kind, uh, repeatedly, I've been telling myself to be the dude, <laughs> which means uh, essentially the same thing, but is a little bit more fun to say, be the dude. And, uh, so the other night as the Oscars unfolded on the television, uh, I was most certainly not the dude. So maybe you're there right now. Maybe, maybe, you know, you're in a good space. Maybe you're in a full dude phase, or maybe you just had a shitty day and you're not the dude right now. Uh, maybe you haven't been the dude for a long time, whatever the case, uh, hopefully this conversation will help bring you into a more dudish state of being. Okay. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. 
It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So once again, my guest is Bernie Glassman. He's a world-renowned pioneer in the American Zen movement. He's a spiritual teacher, uh, an author. He has a PhD in applied mathematics, and he is the founder of the Zen Peacemakers, which you can check out at zenpeacemakers.org. His new book, once again, co-authored by Jeff Bridges, is called The Dude and the Zen Master. It's a New York Times bestseller, and it is available now from Blue Rider Press. So here we go, ladies and gentlemen. This is my conversation with Mr. Bernie Glassman. So I'm in New York, uh, actually in a city called City Island. I just spent a day working at the Grayson Project, which I had started about 30 years ago, which is in Yonkers, New York. Okay. And uh, weren't you just in Sri Lanka? Yes, uh, I came back from Sri Lanka about a week ago. What was happening? May I ask what was happening in Sri Lanka? It seems like kind of an exotic place to go. Well, uh, there's a man whose name is Dr. Ari Ratna, uh, and he goes by Ari for short. And Ari is uh, a Gandhi, the Gandhi of Sri Lanka. In fact, he's been given an award by India as a Gandhi the Gandhi Award. Uh, and I've known him for 30 years. Um, we've shared our models. He's quite an extraordinary man. And he has a movement called Salvadaya, which means enlightenment for all. And uh, so 30 years ago, he started to work in the poorest village in, in Sri Lanka. There are about 30,000 villages in Sri Lanka. And now the Salvadaya movement consists of a about 15,000 villages, and he's, um, there were attempts to assassinate him about five times in his life. He's worked with both the Buddhists and the Tamils. There's been war going on. That war has come to an end, and he used to lead marches of like 100,000 people between the firing lines between the Tamils and the Buddhists. Uh, he himself is a Buddhist, but he does, uh, he's always worked with both the Tamil, which are Hindus, and uh, the Sinhalese, uh, which are Buddhists. And, he's, and you said he survived five assassination attempts? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, in, in quite remarkable ways. Um, yeah. He's a resilient guy. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I guess I want to start by asking you about um, the origin of the book that you did with Jeff Bridges. You know, like, uh, I guess the origin of the book uh, is rooted in your relationship with him. So can you talk a little bit about that just so we can get 
uh, kind of a foundational understanding of how it came to be? Sure. Uh, I moved to Santa Barbara about 15 years ago and lived there for two years. And when I moved to Santa Barbara, um, he, he, Jeff lives in Santa Barbara, and we met pretty soon after my moving there. Uh, I had seen the, the movie, The Big Lebowski, about a year before that, or two years before, and uh, loved the movie and loved the character. And also, uh, he, he appreciated a lot of the lines that were in there as having a very strong Buddhist flavor, but of course, in, in a whole different language. So I approached uh, in my conversations with with Jeff. I said, you know, the, the dude is really a, a Buddhist kind of figure. And in fact, uh, uh, I would call him even a Zen master. And uh, that piqued his interest. And we talked a lot about why why did I think so. But more important, uh, we become began to study together. Uh, basically, he, he had been meditating on a daily basis before that, but uh, we started to talk much more about Zen and what Zen is all about, and uh, in a way became my student, although I, I like to talk about uh, studying together because you learn a lot from who you call your students. I, I call them my friends now when we, we study together. Sure. And we both like to smoke cigars, so we would sit and smoke cigars and talk about the world and about life. And that went on for about 10 years. And then I, I suggested, you know, this, uh, why don't we do a book of our, our studies together? And that was the beginning of uh, the genesis of that book, which and we got together for four days and, and we were taped and videoed. And um, from morning to night, he did the same, talking about life and, and uh, of his life, my life, and, and the, the values of, of Zen and, and the ideas of Zen and the practice of Zen. And that became the book, The Dude and the Zen Master. Well, yeah, I was I was curious about this because as I was reading it, and I've, I've read a lot of books about Buddhism through the years, it's a... Um, it's an interest of mine, and I, I respond to it. And uh, I found that you know, there's differing degrees of clarity and accessibility in writing about Buddhism. It's not the easiest thing in the world to write about. Uh, simply, you know, anything that deals with the great complexities of life can be difficult to boil down into language that uh, somebody like me can understand. But I found that often books that uh, deal with this uh, subject matter in the form of a dialogue, they often work well for me. And so I, as I was reading, I was just wondering how you guys actually structured things or did you structure your days and say, well, today we're going to talk about this and we want to make sure we hit these points or did you just sort of talk and then find the form later? Uh, mostly we just talked and found the form later. Uh, uh, there were various points that I wanted to make sure we we covered, but usually they would just come up in our conversations and then we would go through them. And if there were some points that I wanted to cover that we that didn't come up naturally, 
then I, I would introduce them to make sure that they were included. Uh, my wife actually did the editing. As you can imagine, four days of talk wound up with about 500 pages of transcript. And then she took those 500 pages and sort of uh, first got rid of all the chaff and, and then uh, structured it into the chapters that appear in the book, which are all uh, lines from the, the Big Lebowski. So she structured it to to uh, to work well, and then at places where she felt that the public might not quite get it, what either Jeff was saying or I was saying, she then interviewed us separately and together, and we added material to to, uh, to make it more comprehensive. And I think she did a great job at that. Yeah, no, it's I mean it reads really it reads really well and. Um, I don't know. It, it takes away some of the, yeah, I mean, maybe intimidation is not the right word, but it, it just, I don't know. It, it reads easily. And it's the kind of book that I think somebody who might be new to Zen could read, um, without feeling overwhelmed, you know? So that's a credit to you guys. Yeah. And, and that was clearly in, uh, certainly in my mind that that's what I wanted to do. And I, I talk about that in the book about, how I've had teachers who have said that if you can't talk about what life is about from the viewpoint of Zen in a language that somebody who's never had any knowledge of Buddhism uh, could understand, then you haven't made it quite clear. So uh, we put a lot of energy into trying to do that. Luckily, both Jeff and I, I think, are quite used to talking Simply, as might be a good word, or trying to make these concepts, which might seem a little complicated if they're uh, put into Buddhist language, that we're able to put it into vernacular that that works for a much wider population than those that have deeply studied in Buddhism. Well, and you know, it it should also be said that it would be um, a violation of the spirit of the dude. If it were, if it weren't, um, if there were, you know, if, if it lacked this kind of accessibility and, and sort of uh, vernacular casualness, you know. Um, so I, I want to ask about your life uh, because you've had an interesting road and uh, I'm curious about it. You know, like where, um, you know, what your childhood was like and then how you came to be um, interested in Zen. Yeah, well, I was born in, in, in Brooklyn, New York, in a Jewish family, a Jewish socialist family, uh, not uh, a religious family, much more socialist inclined. So I have preconditions towards wanting to be alone in social action. Um, and I trained as an engineer, aeronautical engineer, worked in the space industry. But while I was studying in undergraduate school, I read a book about the religions of man, and there was one page that talked about Zen, and that felt like home to me. It felt very natural. Now, this is in 1958, so it's quite a number of years ago. And at that point, I started to read everything that was in English about Zen and Buddhism. And in 62, or maybe 63, I, I found a Zen teacher until between 58 and 63, I was practicing on my own and reading. Um, 
And I've, I've continued. I started actually teaching. My teacher was a Japanese Zen teacher. And uh, he asked me to start teaching around 1969. So I've been teaching for a long, long time. And uh, for the last 20 years, I've been, one of my goals is putting, getting the ideas of Zen to a much larger part of society and that been putting it into uh, an easy language or vernacular language. So when it, when it comes to like your kind of pivot to Zen, uh, was it as simple as you just read something about it and really responded, or did you have any kind of, um, like, were you dealing with any deep unhappiness, or were you dissatisfied with uh, the tradition that you were born into? Because, you know, I, I was raised Catholic, and I think back to, you know, I was 19 years old, and, uh, you know, suddenly found, I went to school in, in Colorado at Boulder, and suddenly found myself in, um, you know, like, a, I guess it's called a spiritual bookstore on Pearl Street. And I'm just looking through these books and I don't even know why, you know, quite why, but, um, I think at least part of it was some sense of dissatisfaction with, um, the tradition that I was raised in, or I was looking for something that spoke to me, um, in a language that I could understand more clearly. Did you have that experience with your Judaism? No, actually I didn't. I, um, uh, I was interested in spirituality, even though I wasn't raised in a religious family. Uh, and I had, on my own, starting at the age of 12, explored the pros and cons of the existence of God by reading in literature and different religions. So I'd done a lot of study. But I, I was not familiar with Buddhism until, as I say, in 1958, I was now 19, I was 19 years old. And I came across this, and it, it just it seemed so natural to me. So it was not a case of dissatisfaction or looking for anything that would make my life better. Uh, it was somewhat accidental. It was uh, a book that I was assigned to read in my English class, and just happened to come across that, and that changed my whole life. So it was just yeah, it was just a book that got assigned to you, and that was the and that was the book. yeah. But did you do you yep. find do you find uh, and, and do you find and did you find that um, the Judaism of your youth and the Buddhism of your adult life can coexist peacefully, or do you find that you had to sort of pick one? No, I, I would still consider myself Jewish, and in fact, I've done a lot of interfaith work. I've studied in, in Hinduism, and I've spent time in Catholic monasteries. I uh, I have taken hands in the Sufi tradition and also in the Hindu tradition, so, and the Zen community in New York, which I founded in 1980, uh, I founded as an interfaith community. So I've given Dharma transmission, which means I've finished studies with uh, people and, and empower them to be teachers, and among those are Catholic priests and nuns, rabbis, Jewish rabbis, Sufi sheikhs, and so this interfaith uh, aspect is continual all my life and, and basically for me the spirituality is is uh, uh, around the realization of the interconnectedness of life and the realization that none of us have the truth but we all have various opinions which fits in of course do this I felt that way that's just your opinion man right uh, and so I, I I have hooked up with spiritual leaders in various traditions that come from those same places. 
and I've stayed away from spiritual leaders that feel that they have the truth. Yeah, yeah that always sends up a red flag for me, you know. Um, yeah. So when you when you uh, you know started conceptualizing this book and you're talking with Jeff, did you guys ever talk to the Cohen brothers and ask them about their intent when they made the movie? Because I'm curious about that, you know. And I think listeners might wonder, like, when they sat down to write The Big Lebowski, were they doing it from an explicitly Buddhist perspective, or was it something that sort of, you know, it was a happy accident of the process? Yeah, I actually spoke directly with both of them on the set of, um, oh, God, um, yeah, forgive me once in a while, I'm 74. And True Grit? I, I forget, True Grit. While Jeff was uh, filming True Grit, I, I visited him and we actually did a, an interview for a Tricycle magazine. But uh, I went on the set with him and he introduced me to the Cohen Brothers and I asked him that. And one of the Cohen brothers said he knew nothing about Zen and has no interest in it. And the other one said uh, that he knows about Zen and he has read some stuff. But both of them said nothing in the movie came from the, uh, uh, explicitly from the world of Zen. And, um, yeah. Wow. And Jeff also spoke with them about that. And in fact, when we were going to do the book, he asked them, it would be okay to do it uh, since we use a lot of their terminology and things. And they say, sure, go ahead, man. That's interesting. You know, and it reminds me of a story in the book and forgive me for forgetting like the names and the exact details, but it was a, it was a story from ancient China, I believe. And it was about um, a guy who was not uh, a Buddhist, you know, and he was from South China, I believe. And he went North and, um, you know, was he was a Zen yeah. master? You know what I'm saying? So, like, it's it's interesting that like you know somebody can be uh, embodying the qualities of um, you know Zen without realizing it or without having studied it. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't necessarily it can come in many, sure. different, many yeah. different ways and forms. Sure, because what we're talking about is life itself. So, independent of uh, what tradition we're in or what we know or don't know. Uh, if, if we get insights into life, they, they have to be the same. If, they're, if they work, somebody else is going to get those same insights but have a different language to, to put it in. So the man you're talking about was an illiterate uh, uh, wood chopper, actually, and uh, he just heard a phrase, which is a nice coincidence. The phrase he heard is from an important Buddhist sutra called the Diamond Sutra, and the phrase he heard is, abiding nowhere bathes the bodhi-mind, the mind of compassion. And that triggered him into, he wanted to know more, and he asked that I where to learn this, and he went to visit that Zen monastery, it was a long travel, uh, and he became one of the so-called saints of, of Zen, the sixth uh, major teacher in China of Zen. Uh, and of course, in the Big Lebowski, the, the dude abides, and the dude is not in this uh, very important line, so we talk about what that all means, but the line in the Diamond Sutra that says abiding nowhere means not being attached to anything, which means abiding everywhere, or just abiding. And then 
naturally the mind of compassion will arise and it's hampered from arising by our attachments, by abiding to some fixed place. Well, and it's interesting, too, because you guys talk about, uh, and, you know, you think about the Big Lebowski, and it's not that the dude is some, you know, exists constantly on some ethereal plane where nothing bothers him and, you know, nothing bad. You know what I'm saying? He's not completely Zen in the way that I think popular perception might conceive of it. You know, he gets pissed off sometimes. Things happen, you know, but um, can you talk? Every Zen guy gets pissed off. I, I mean, to to... To have the realizations of the interconnectedness of life does not mean that it's now all bliss. It means that things happen and they happen in such a way that you offer that make you happy, but that you can abide with that, you can be with that and not stick to it and then regurgitate it and, and, and try to recreate those things that have made you so happy or, or stay away from those that have made you pissed off and think that. You, you've gotten to some place where now you're some superhuman where you're not going to have these ups and downs. No, it's not that. It's, you're going to have all that. All that's going to continue because that's what life is. But we know how to deal with it. And we deal with it by being in the moment and not by having expectations of, of uh, how, to, how to recreate it or how to get rid of it. Okay, so let's let me try to drill down a little bit more because this, I think, is uh, something that listeners might... Uh benefit from i sir i certainly would like for you who have you know you've studied this and have practiced for all these years uh let's say you get extremely angry or something just really gets you how do you how do you deal with it when you're at your best and you're employing the teachings of zen yeah so it's it's uh, uh as you say i've been in this for a while over 50 years close to 55 years and at this point, I don't bring anything to bear. So, for example, if, if a student would ask me, I get angry, what should I do with it? I would say, just be angry. Don't spend your time trying to analyze why you got angry or what am I going to do now. Totally just be angry at, at that moment, and it will pass. Just like clouds come by and, and rain falls, and then clouds move on, and now it's sunny. You know, things just are what they are, and they change. So to live in the, in the, in the moment, or to live with what is happening, and not add extra grief to it by trying to figure out why did that happen to me, or how do I make that happen to me again, but to just walk the path, to keep on trucking, uh, then if, uh, that's the Zen way. Hmm. And so I want to talk to you about... So it's not a promise. I, I, we're not going to promise anyone that you're going to be in bliss the rest of your life if you practice that, or you're going to be totally... You're never going to have downtime. So you are. You, you are. That's what life is. So it's much more a, a realization of what life is. Uh, you know, if we talk about it, we're all interconnected. That means that we're connected with all of the evils of the world, or the things that we label as evils. That's all us too. So how to work with all of that? That's the issue. How, how do you work with it? You know, like, I mean, I, I think... You, like... you, 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 you do the best you can, and that's, that's all you can do. So you take all the ingredients, all the things that are happening, and you say, okay, what's the best meal I can make? 
And now I, I, I do that, and, and maybe it screws things up. Maybe screw, and screwing things up means from, from my perspective. Or maybe it makes things better, and again, means just from my perspective. But now the next moment I say, okay, now I have all these new ingredients. What do I do now? So it's constantly just working with what you have at the moment and doing the best you can, and that's all we can do. So what does your daily meditation practice look like? I mean, are you, are you somebody who sits for, you know, a half an hour twice a day or longer? Like, how, how does it work for you? So I'm now 74, and my knees don't function. Uh, uh, my shoulders have arthritis. I do, and, and I could recommend this highly to everybody, I do an hour of meditation every morning, in a jacuzzi. Oh, wow. Is it not a pleasure? Yeah, I was going to so, <laughs> uh, Of course, I'm, tonight, for example, I'm going to be giving a talk in a, in a Zen center, and tomorrow will be a one-day talk in a Zen center. So there will be some formal meditation. But my daily meditation, I, and I do an hour a day of daily meditation, so does Jeff, by the way. But I do mine in, in a hot tub. First thing in the morning. First thing in the morning. See, it doesn't... Yeah, that's, Usually around five in the morning. At, at five in the morning? Usually. I get up early. early. I, I, I go to sleep early. I get up early. I usually get up around 2.33, but sometimes as late as five. Okay. Wow, that's early. <laughs> um And I'm, you know, because I've, I've gone through phases in my life. I wish I meditated with greater discipline. I've talked about this on this show before, I think, you know, but, um, because this show is about, um, writers, you know, that's, that's the, the brunt of it or or the centerpiece of it. And, you know, I've, I've always found that meditation and writing have a lot in common because you have to sort of just sit in the chair or, or just sit there, you know, and, and, and deal with the thoughts that are arising and deal with all of the temptations, um, to get up or to be distracted or to be fixated on whatever fear or anxiety that you might have. So I think the two have a lot of, uh, a lot to, you know, teach each other. There's a lot of synchronicity there. And I guess like a question that I would have is measuring improvement, noticing ways that meditation has benefited you, um, you know, from where you started when you were a young man to where you are now. And then along the way, did you ever get frustrated and say, this isn't working or I, I'm not getting any better? You know, I keep sitting here and uh, the thoughts keep coming. And do, do you know what I'm saying? Like, do, do you look at it now and go, God, I've gotten so much better at this over the years? Or do you do you just think I've just gotten better at understanding that you, you just have to keep sitting and keep trying? Right. So I would say in my early years, um, I had certain expectations of what the, the, what it would mean to have enlightening experiences or whatever. And I probably, in those days, would say uh, things are getting better or worse. But as my experiences accumulated, I realized that uh, the, the only problems were in the expectations that the living of life, if you could just live without those expectations, that that just made things flow better. Flow better meant that I, my work was better. 
do I do I still have times of depression? Sure. Uh, times of elation? Sure. But uh, I didn't stick to those. I, and I got to the place where I realized that meditation was an important part of my life, just as breathing and eating. And there was never an idea that I would stop breathing or stop eating or stop meditating. These were just parts of the day now. And through the years, uh, I've become more and more able to accept everyone as who they are and their opinions or the things that they're saying as just their opinions and that their opinions are just as important as my opinions or anybody else's opinions. And I've wound up having a lot of fun sharing opinions and, and trying to look at it from these different perspectives. So uh, in a way, I, I, uh, through the years, I've become much more, um, well, I don't know if accepting is the right word, but enjoying life. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and there's this wonderful like my phrase in the movie, enjoying my coffee. I mean, I can just sit enjoying my coffee and a cigar, and 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 at the same time, I'm working in places of uh, of uh, a huge conflict. I mean, I work in the Middle East and Rwanda and Sri Lanka and um, Auschwitz and living on the streets, and, uh, but. I can do that and bear witness to it and let what comes up come up. And it's uh, been a wonderful life. So, and you, you know, there's a wonderful section of the book where you talk about meditation uh, and forgive me if I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, it's like, it's like you're, you're pouring sand. Uh, it's like those, uh, those, those punch dolls or whatever that you, you'd knock over and then they bounce right back up. And uh, the more that you meditate, the more that you practice, the more sand, accumulates so that you it's it, you know you become more solid and you still get knocked off course a little bit but you bounce back more quickly so when you talk about uh, your own experience you know practicing for years and years uh, you say you know that the the depression uh, there are still moments of depression or, or periods of depression can you talk a little bit about those and how y- you've managed to make those periods shorter because it really is about you know, how quickly you come back. It's not that these things aren't going to happen. It's just about recovering more quickly. Is that correct? Yes. And, and that is a beautiful metaphor. And I, I use that uh, uh, a lot. The, those dolls that you, uh, that you punch, they always fall. That's the nature of life. And we're accumulating more sand. And, and that for me has been, uh, Meditation it has given that effect, creating more and more sand, so that you come back uh, quicker for the same amount of forces that's used to knock us over. There will always be new forces that come that knock us over just as bad as before, but now we're, we're still accumulating more sand, so it means more and more we, we can withstand. Uh, larger and larger forces that are knocking because they would would have knocked us over years before and maybe knocked us over to the point where we couldn't get up or that we wound up in a hospital or, or whatever. So that's an effect that I, I've definitely seen. Now, part of my practice, which is 
not necessarily one to recommend to everybody, is that I seek out those larger forces. So when I run into something that would have the tendency to be so uh, violent to me that I would want to either deny it or run away from it, which is like being knocked totally over, I take that as an opportunity to get more sand in my ballast and I will enter into those situations and bear witness for them. So in that, in that, like, no, in a, in a easy way, all I'm saying is that when there are things that arise in our life and they always will, that will tend to want to make us run away or, or deny they're even happening. If you can stick in that situation and bear witness to it, then you have the possibility of having more saying coming to your ballast and making it more stable. And so, like, in those moments, do you, I mean, just to concretize it, do you, I mean, when you say bear witness, does this mean that, like, let's say you're in some very intense situation, um, personal, that you, you're really knocked off course or you're depressed or whatever it is, do you take... Do you sit down an extra 30 minutes that day? Do you find yourself taking conscious breaths? Like, is there some tangible thing that you do? Do you know what I'm saying? Like a practice? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. When I say bearing witness, uh, now, first of all, for me, meditation is a bearing witness to the wholeness of life. That's a general thing. And that's why, for me, it's important that there's a daily practice of meditation. But when I run into an incident, it's not, to, in, in that case, bearing witness would be to try to stay in that situation and, 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 and feel what it is. What, so, for example, I wanted to work with the homeless, and I created a big program about 30 years ago to work with homeless, but before I did it, I went to live in the streets. I call that bearing witness to people living in the streets. So it's not that I would take that situation of homelessness and get depressed about it and, and then go and say, oh, I got I to gotta do more Zazen and do more meditation. I said, I got to I gotta bear witness to what's going on. And so I went to live in the streets with people. And then out of that came ideas of what to do in my work with the homeless. Yeah, it's, a, it's, sort, of count, um, it's sort of counterintuitive. You know, instead of, like most people would think, uh, I think I'm going to keep a safe distance from that experience, and you're talking about kind of running right at it, you know, and di- exactly. Diving, exactly. Right, diving right into exactly. it. Exactly, and and a common uh, uh, a common experience where that tendency is there, but it, but it's sort of obvious that it's not the best thing to do. It's if a loved one is dying, and you're with them. There might be a tendency to want to get out of the room. Like when my mother, my mother died when I was very young, and my father, and uh, she was released from the hospital in order for her to die at home, and my father wouldn't go into the room with her. Now that's in a way somewhat common, uh, maybe not in that extreme, but when something is occurs that we we, we we're not prepared to deal with the normal tendency is to get out of the, get out of the room, man, <laughs> or or to deny that it's even happening. But if you have a loved one that's dying, 
there may be a tendency to say, oh, I got to get out of here. But most people would stay with that person who's dying and bear witness to what's going on. And those that do that grow immensely, grow immensely. Those who run out of the room, uh, they don't grow. Well, and when you talk about running out of the room, there's different forms that it can take. I mean, it's not just maybe there's physically staying away from something or some situation, but there's ways that we sort of run away from ourselves or from experience internally, or we numb ourselves with drugs and alcohol or, you know, there are those, sure. there are those ways of avoiding too. Those are the most common. Those are the most common, whether it's, uh, you know, we all escape by watching TV or movies or, or uh, to a smaller degree, but uh, drugs, alcohol, those are, are worse. And then there's some that is uh, very natural that we're not really aware of, and that's just called denial. And uh, we don't let it touch our consciousness. And we're not even, since it's in the unconscious, we're not even aware that we're doing it. But that's happening all the time. You know, it's, yeah, it's so funny. Like, I, I, denial is, is really tricky. And I've had only one, like, I mean, I'm sure I've denied plenty of things in my life, but I have one, like, explicitly um, powerful moment of it that happened when a friend of mine uh, took his own life. And this was when I was a young man. And I got the call uh, from a friend because uh, I was in California and this happened in Colorado. And I got the call and my friend gave me the news. And I, I remember uh, I dropped the phone and then I picked it back up and I said a few words and I hung up. And then the news that, you know, the, of how he had died just sort of left my mind or something. It was like I didn't believe it until I got another call later that day and it slowly just began to materialize. But, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, it was like, wow, you know, I can't believe that I did that you know, or that I could do that. I completely shut it out or shut it down somehow in that moment. And mm. it's extraordinary. You know, it's, it's unbelievable how yeah. we can do that. Yeah. And it's very common. It's very common. Mm. That's so I want to ask you a question related, I guess, to what we were just talking about with regard to um, drugs and alcohol, because, um, you know, obviously the dude, uh, you know, he'll, he'll smoke a joint and do that kind of stuff. And, you know, you read various things in, um, scripture or in books about Buddhism, about how we should consume, whether it's uh, chemicals or food or movies and television and books. And, you know, where do you fall on that? Because it can be a little confusing. You know, I, I don't know if there's maybe one answer. Yeah. Uh, so to tell you, it, in my opinion, I don't fall on anything. <laughs> I think that uh, I have my opinions about things, and uh, and I look at whatever anybody is doing and saying as their opinions, and I'll, and, and I'll discuss them, but I don't think that one opinion is right or wrong. So I wouldn't, I would never say you shouldn't smoke a joint, and I would never say you should smoke a joint, you know? If, if that's your thing, that's your thing. So I, I smoke cigars. So that that could be uh, many people will say, what, "What the hell are you doing? You're the same guy. And you smoke cigars." Well, if their opinion, you shouldn't smoke cigars. In my opinion, I like, I enjoy cigars. So the the biggest thing is that I'm not. I don't come down on anything as uh, as an absolute. 
I have my opinions on things. And, uh, you know, that gets me into trouble with a lot of people because they want me to, to issue some obvious truth. Like, uh, like you should never kill anybody. You know, you should be a guy like Gandhi and not kill anybody. But my sense is I, if I saw somebody coming in with a gun to shoot my kid, uh, and, and like the only way to stop them would be like killing him, I would kill You know, that's what I think in my opinion. I don't know what, when, when it occurred or what I would do. So again, if I look at my body, for example, I, and I use this analogy many times, if I look at my body and I have cancer cells uh, coming up, everybody has cancer cells arising. And we all also have white cells that are attacking the cancer cells and keeping it under check. And it becomes a problem when they don't do a good enough job and they, the cancer cells multiply enough to become tumors or, or spread too far. But I would never uh, say to my white cells, hey, guys, I'm a pacifist. Stop killing those <laughs> cancer cells. Right. You know, and just in that way, if I look well and the attention, so a guy like a Hitler arises, would I tell somebody, don't, don't shoot him? I, I wouldn't do that. That's a cancer cell that is arisen. And if a white cell arises to, to uh, take care of that, then uh, uh, in my opinion, that's the thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm of the same mind. I mean, I find that a lot of times when I will start to turn something over, like some big moral, you know, question of morality in my mind. I, it's very, it's very rarely black and white. You know, it's almost always some, you know, strange mix. Yeah, in uh, in, in the Zen tradition, in, in in Cohen's study, there's a study of precepts, and uh, there are certain precepts, illicit uh, precepts, and. Um, and one, of course, is not a killing. Um, but we always look at the precepts from four different perspectives. One, one second. We, we look at the precepts from four different perspectives. One is the absolute perspective, which is what it is. It says, don't kill, don't kill. The second is looking at it from the time and place. What, what's the situation now? Uh, and what's the place? So if, if it's a, a, a bush that's growing and it's overgrowing and it's destroying itself, uh, it's, uh, it, it could be correct to prune the branches so that the bigger bush can live. Um, uh, another perspective is from the place that there uh, it's called the absolute scene that there's no giver or given there's nothing to be destroyed or nothing no destroyer I put the least emphasis on on that and uh, the biggest emphasis is on looking at the time, the place, the people involved. So it's a very subjective way of looking, and it's, and the same situation could be very different in a different time, a different place, and, and, uh, uh, and with different people, depending on the people involved. So it, it is very subjective. So we don't have a, a, 
a, a strict moral code as you might have in other uh, traditions. And, and then we, we have to take into account the, uh, the environment and what's going on and who the players. And so the whole thing becomes very, very subjective. Hmm. So, you know, there, there's all sorts of things that sort of popped up in my mind as you were saying that. I'm thinking about, um, I don't know, I don't even know how related this is, but like the gun debate and the Second Amendment for some reason was, you know, popping up. And I was thinking about uh, the subjectivity of it and, um, you know, what's applicable 200 years ago versus the conditions that we have now and how those things change. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's always with a little bit of amusement when I hear people say, well, they're being inconsistent. Uh, I mean, life is all about change. That's the fundamental rule in Buddhism. It, everything has changed, and, and indeed, it's new shit has come to life. So it's always changing. So to look at something that was written 200 years ago and think that that is has to be applicable now uh, in a way that seems silly from at least from a Buddhist standpoint. Well, and, uh, you know, along a similar line, like this is something that I wrestle with and I feel um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a subject of great fascination to me. And I think that it's, you know, obviously central to life in general, but I think American life specifically, and I want to ask you about it. Um, and it's it's the tension between the individualist impulse that we celebrate in America and I think is also really like um, a part of like the American West in particular, you know, the rugged individualist uh, versus the understanding. And I think this falls under um, the Buddhist tent, um, you know, uh, to a great degree, the understanding that we're all interrelated, that everything is connected, that we're all one, that we're all made of the same stuff. And so, you know, how does Buddhism try to reconcile those two competing impulses or ideologies? Because obviously there's truth to both, but there's often a tension between the two, you know, not only politically, but also personally or, you know, in, in any number of situations. Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Like individualism versus, uh, you know, interconnectedness. So, so, uh, a metaphor has always helped, helped me, and uh, I do have this metaphor in the book, but with this kind of a question, I, I'll ask people to look at their own body. And we would say we're all interconnected. At least my body is interconnected. My, my legs, my arms, my head, my navel, my hairs, my nose, it's, it's all interconnected. It's, it's one body. And that's what we mean by the interconnectedness of life. And uh, that's a degree of enlightenment to see that your own body is interconnected. And most people uh, would say that. You know, 99.9% of people would say that. And the person who doesn't say that, we would call delusional. If they think their hand is some, something else, it's not part of them. <laughs> so that's the interconnectedness part. But now a finger gets cut. Uh, do we not take care of the finger because it's uh, that would be looked at as an individual act? You know, so the oneness of life is the fact that everything is different. Everything is different. So at the very same time, to take care of the interconnectedness of life is to take care of every individual, and we can only operate from that standpoint of the individual. 
that's that's where our place of action is. So I don't see a contradiction or even a tension between the two if we can grasp that that it all is interconnected. It's only when we can't grasp, for example, if I had the delusion that my right hand was not part of me, and then something happened to the right hand, the rest of me can say, well, you know, I know I'm interconnected, but uh, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm not going to take care of that. That's a delusional state, and that's what we call that we're not enlightened to that degree, to the interconnectedness of the one body. And so that same kind of image goes on in terms of interconnectedness between our family, between our society, between the world. If we're, if as those interconnectedness become part of who we are, that is, we we have realized them, and, and, and it's not just an intellectual pursuit, but that's what we are, then it's natural that we're taking care of the whole thing by taking care of the individual. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I think especially of our of our political systems and um, like I think like nothing strikes me as more undoed than politics, <laughs> uh, and especially you know the arguing and the constant back and forth that you see and just the petty um, battle. I guess you can call them battles of opinions that you see happening. And I, I guess personally, I just wish that there was more of a recognition of interconnectedness driving those systems. You know, but yeah, yeah, it's a. Yeah, it's it's a, fr- it's a frustration. <laughs> um, so before I let you go, I want to ask you, because again, this is a, a show um, you know that a lot of writers and creative people listen to. I'd like to ask you just about your experience. I'm sure through the years you've worked with plenty of creative people, um, you know, maybe helping them try to get unstuck or helping them overcome some sort of fear or anxiety that was preventing um, uh, their creativity from realizing its uh, best expression. Like, do you have thoughts here on how Zen might apply to people who are trying to write creatively or do something creatively? Yeah, it's a better question for my, the first person that I empowered as a Zen teacher is a, a, a wonderful writer by the name of Peter Matheson. And he'd be a great one to ask that question because that's, you know, he, he's, his whole life is about creativity I think all of our lives are about creativity, but uh, the the freer you are, the less you're concerned with with your expectations of doing well or or not doing well. I think the the more that creativity flows. So, a guy like Peter, from the time I met him, in, uh, which was uh, I don't know twenty. 25 years ago, uh, he's always been just writing, you know, four hours a day or a certain amount of hours a day where he just writes. And there were periods where he was concerned that, um, that things weren't flowing as well as they should flow. And I think through those years of meditation, that all sort of disappeared, and he became freer and freer. Now, he's a guy who started off as, as an accomplished writer, but he, he became freer and freer in, in terms of his craft. Um, 
So it's, it's but that's a good question for for uh, for artists who are heavily involved in that. Well, and it's you know so it's just someday you should. No, I was just going to say, you know, it's like it's, it's expectations management because I know from experience you sit down to write and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you know, a hundred miles into the future thinking about the book release party and what's the book going to look like on the shelf and how many copies is it going to sell? And, you know, you have all these things yeah. that build. And I think that does, uh, I think that does a lot to, um, you know, limit the flow. <laughs> right. I agree. So if somebody listening is uh, like interested in Zen and you meet people and they say, I want to get started, uh, what do you tell them? You know, like, is there something like you give them a book? Do you say go to a center? Do you have like what what tangibly can people do if they wanted to try to, um, you know, develop a real practice and give themselves some sort of structure that, you know, would enable them to to really benefit? Yeah. So uh, first, uh, two books that I would recommend. One, which you just uh, is the reason why you're calling me, is the Dude in the Zen Master. I think that will give a flavor. And the other book I would recommend to somebody that's exploring is Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. And those will give a flavor. And now if the flavor is such that you want to taste more of the product, then I, I, I would recommend going to a Zen center or at least hooking up with a Zen teacher that you relate to so that you can bounce things off of. So for example, Jeff Bridges, I, I don't think would have wound up at a Zen center, but uh, he found me as a guy to bounce things off of. But uh, for many, going to a Zen center, if there is one in your neighborhood, uh, that, that's the best way. And then, uh, what about the like the retreats that you do? Because like uh, you you alluded to this briefly, but I think it's such an interesting thing that you do. But the the retreats to Auschwitz in particular, um, you know, you go on, you, you take people on retreats, and and what does that entail, and what does that experience? You know, can you just talk about um, the experience. I, I, yeah, I call it a plunge. So uh, it's it's been my experience, and that's why I keep doing it. That those that bearing witness retreats, and I've done them on the streets. I I don't. I, I may have done my last one. I, I did. I've done them for twenty years, uh, but there are now a bunch of my students that are leading street retreats all around the world, actually. But Auschwitz, we've as this will be the eighteenth year, and, and we're going to start when we're going to have one in uh, Rwanda. And I found those bearing witness retreats to be major plunges to get you going in your practice, and even for those who've been practicing a long time, to uh, have a tremendous effect. That's why I keep doing it. They're uh, they're very important retreats. So uh, if you're ready to jump into that, I would highly recommend it. They're, they're wonderful. So what do you I mean? Do you do you, do you, you don't stay at Auschwitz? You stay near it, and then you you practice. No, we stay in. Oh, you mean sleep? We sleep at at a at a, a Christian center that's uh, within walking distance of of uh, the camps, and we're at the camp uh, most of the day, and we do our meditation in the camp uh, on the tracks where the the selection site where 
the main lawyer, selected people to go either to gas chamber or slave labor. And then, but where we sleep, as I say, it's a a, a Catholic center that was set up there for, for groups to come. And in the morning before breakfast, we meet in small groups sharing what's come up. So there's a lot of meditation and there's a lot of sharing of all the stuff that is coming up. And uh, in those retreats, I bring as many voices as possible. So in Auschwitz, we'll bring children and grandchildren of SS people and people who ran the camps, as well as survivors and children of survivors, as well as other people that have been affected by genocide. And uh, there's a very he- there there it's a heavy retreat in a way, but a very powerful and. Um, it's a, uh, quite a bit of meditation and quite a bit of sharing of the things that are coming up. Wow, it's like you because, just you just said uh, you know the, the children and grandchildren of of SS soldiers, and so often when you talk about um, the Holocaust and and uh, this kind of stuff, obviously you talk about the victims and the victims' families, but you don't often think about what it must be like to be a descendant of somebody who did. Uh, or who played a role in these kinds of atrocities? Well, they're they're as big victims. I mean, the uh, it's the 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 guilt in, in these later generations uh, is huge. So, in a way, everybody there is a victim. Yeah. Wow. Of, of the, you know. Well, uh, Bernie, I could keep talking to you. I, you know, it's it's really it's really been great, and uh, I appreciate. Um, I love the book, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And I wish you all the best. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. All right, you guys, there you have it. That is Bernie Glassman. Go get the dude and the Zen Master, co-authored by Jeff Bridges. It is available now from Blue Rider Press. You can find Bernie online at zenpeacemakers.org. He's on Facebook. And you can also find him on Twitter, where his handle is at Bernie Glassman. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the theme song music and also for the closing transitional music. Uh, And thanks to Bob Dylan for that opening transitional number, uh, The Man and Me. I couldn't resist uh, a little Big Lebowski tribute. That is the dude theme song, for those of you who haven't seen the movie. But uh, everybody's seen that movie, right? You have to see that movie. So a uh, good talk with Bernie. Uh, I really enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, I'm going to meditate. That's my takeaway. I'm going to do it. It's going to be like eating food. It's going to be like sleeping. It, it's going to be, it's got to be part of my day. That's what I've come to. I don't want to yell. I don't want to lose my shit. I want to <laughs> find my shit. I want to find my center. I want to keep my thread. I want to be docile during earthquakes. Please remember that uh, Karl Marx regularly read Shakespeare aloud to his young children and that Duke Ellington and Miles Davis are buried in the same cemetery in the Bronx. Uh, That is all for now, I believe. Uh, Did I forget something? Oh, be sure to get the Other People app if you don't have that yet. The official Other People app. It's free. It's easy. It's elegant. uh, It's available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, or your Android device. It doesn't cost anything. So go get that. It's the best way to listen to this show as far as I'm concerned. Uh, So thanks for being here, you guys. As always, thanks to Bernie and Jeff for uh, delivering me into a better headspace. I hope that you, wherever you happen to be, are in a good headspace. And uh, if you you weren't in a a good headspace when this started, hopefully uh, this helped a little bit. So uh, 
Be the dude. Be the dude. I'm going to try to say it like Sam Elliott. Be the dude. <laughs>